What if I told you that the good life you lead and the greatest dreams you could ever have were like the mere flickering of a candle when compared to the eclipsing magnitude of the sun? You see, all that you are will ever be began with the beat and the rhythm of truth, purpose, and abundant life reaching far beyond the good you can achieve to the great you can only receive from a loving heavenly father and God who desires to bless you in every facet of your life so tell me tell me why would you settle for less when you can have the keys to God's best so listen closely and hear his word as it speaks of the passion for his children for which his heart beats. Good morning. Welcome to Forest Hill Church, one church, soon to be five campuses, online community that joins us. We appreciate your presence. And we're in the middle of a series called Heartbeats and, and the Genesis behind all of it was, as I thought about opportunities to meet with you, which grow rarer and rarer because the church is growing so large, um, and the questions that continually get asked of me in different areas, what would I say to you if I had 35 minutes with you personally, one-on-one, about the issues you're struggling with? So I asked the care and counseling program here at Forest Hill, and, and by the way, your offerings go to finance those master's and Ph.D. level counselors who don't charge a penny because we don't think anybody should have to pay if they're really suffering a crisis and need, in need of certain help. I asked them, what are the major issues you're struggling with? What do you continually hear from the body called Forest Hill? And that's when I got subjects like marriage and um, family breakups and parenting kids and then this week on loneliness. On loneliness. They told me that this is one of the major issues they continually deal with in their counseling. So let me spend 35 minutes with you, from my heart to yours, addressing the subject of loneliness. Uh, let me begin by referencing a study by Robert Putnam that was put into a book in the year 2000 called Bowling Alone. Uh, he was talking about how America used to bowl in leagues. A place of community would be people coming together and bowling together in leagues. But then he said in around 1980 to 1990, people started bowling alone. They no longer had community. They no longer had close friendships. And he started analyzing why America moved away from a society of community being important now to a society of loneliness. And he gave several reasons for this particular problem. First of all, the breakdown of the family. As more and more divorces have occurred, people feel detached and lonely. God wanted the family to be the first place where a man and woman would be each other's best friends. But then also the children and even the grandchildren raised in that community would know each other well, but that has broken apart, thus causing the severe problem of loneliness in our culture. And there are marriages, even some of you are in them, where you are with someone, but you're very alone. You're not in a relationship. 
And that's sad beyond words. Second reason Putnam gave was rootlessness. Uh, really, rootlessness can be traced to the desire for material possessions. It's funny, whenever I speak on materialism, most of you think I'm talking to somebody else. But it's a problem among us all. We want more and more, and we're never satisfied. In our quest for more and more material possessions, we then take another job in another city that gives us more money, then another job in another city that gives us more money, thus destroying the whole fabric of friendship which keeps people together. If you're not in a community for more than just a couple of years and you're moving from one place to another, you can't have deep, abiding, personal friendships. The desire for job success and materialism motivates rootlessness. Thirdly, Putnam said, deferred marriages. Not only are people marrying less, they're marrying later, if at all. And because the family, again, was the place where God wanted those deep relationships to begin to be formed, if people are marrying later and less, that means that structure is demolished and you just don't have those close friendships like you used to have. Fourth, garage doors. And some of you are going, what in the world is that? <laughs> That's when you work those long hours and your hours are increasingly longer because you want more and more stuff. When you finally do get off work, you go home and if you have one, you open the garage door with your clicker, you pull your car in, and then you lower the garage door thereafter. And then you throw the alligators in the moat to make sure that nobody bothers you once you're home. It used to be in churches that we would practice door-to-door -door evangelism. We would go randomly knock on doors and just give people the opportunity to dialogue with us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not done anymore, mostly because nobody opens their doors. Once they're inside and have closed the garage door, they want solitude. They want to be left alone, which leads to the next issue, technology. Technology. In 2000, Putnam pointed his finger to the largest victim technologically, and that was television. That as people went home and went inside, they spent more and more hours watching television. Now, 15 years later, it's not just TV, is it? We have our mobile units, iPods, iPads, uh, iPhones, and we can watch any television program, any movie, anytime we want to. And the problem with technology is not only that we spend enormous amounts of time watching it, it's just not conducive to building strong, deep, interpersonal relationships. Think about it. If I text you a message, first of all, that autocorrect oftentimes sends a message I didn't even intend. What about you? <laughs> and you have to resend it going, no, didn't mean that, meant this. And sometimes it says some things, well, let's not go there, okay? Okay. <laughs> Moreover, if I send you a text or an Instagram or an email or whatever, you can't see my eyes. You can't see my body language. You can't feel my touch. And all of those and other things are essential in building close, meaningful, personal relationships. So technology today has isolated us entertained us, and kept us from being involved in deep, meaningful relationships. Sixth, death. Some of you are experiencing 
the fear of loneliness that will accompany as you age. As people grow older and the rootlessness has caused family to move away, people are alone without anyone to care for them. And the thought of moving into a nursing home and being alone is overwhelming. And finally, sin. I mean, just pure, unadulterated sin keeps us from a close, personal relationship with God. And I'm going to address that in a moment. That's the reason Jesus came, is to get rid of that sin problem so that we could be reconnected to the abiding, permanent presence of God. So what does the Bible have to say about loneliness? I'm going to give you three verses, then we're going to move into some practical application and a lot of other verses, but so we can show reverence to the reading of the Scripture. If you're able, would you now stand and look at these verses with me on what does the Bible say about the problem of loneliness. First of all, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Genesis 1 and 2, as you have a biblical worldview, shows creation as God intended it. Genesis 3 is the fall, shows why this world's in the mess that we're in. But here's God's original intent for community or for relationships. Genesis 2, 18. Would you read it with me? Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God created Adam out of the dust of the earth. He breathed his spirit into him. And then he said, but it's not good for Adam to live alone. So please note that God created Eve from Adam's side. Notice, guys, not from under his foot, but from his side to be a helper, a helpmate, and that in community together they could accomplish God's call upon their lives. We were created for community. We were designed to be in relationships with other people. That's God's original intent. Then Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Ralph, I hope you don't fall anytime soon, okay? Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, some of you know this verse is often read at marriage ceremonies, and it could well be. Two is better than one in that marriage relationship. And obviously when it gets cold at night, it sure is nice to have someone to snuggle close to you and keep you warm. That's implied in these texts. But interestingly, um, I think it's talking more about friendships, talking more about relationships. And, And one of the most powerful verses here is when it talks about if you fall when you're alone. And I couldn't help but remind myself of when my daddy, when he was aging, fell and broke his hip in his apartment and he was alone. Mom had died. And there was no one there to help him stand up. How frightening that must have been for him. But also, the text goes on to say, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That two are really cool to have in friendship with one another. It's even greater when there are three. And I would add in four and five and six. It's great when you have a number of people who are in close friendship with you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So 
So loneliness is a real problem in, in the American culture. The question then arises, what do we do to begin to address it? What does the Bible teach us how to address the problem of loneliness? We begin by giving this answer, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Jesus came to take away that sin problem that kept us from being in relationship with God. The uniqueness of the Christian faith, dear friends, and if you came from a toxic church environment where you were hurt and abused, I'm so sorry. The Christian faith was never intended to be that, nor was it intended to be reduced to simple rules and regulations, a checklist of do's and don'ts, and at the end of the day, you feel like you're good and righteous because you've done good things. The Christian faith is an intimate, personal, living, dynamic relationship with the God of this universe who created us through Jesus Christ, his son. When Jesus absorbed on the cross all of our sin and all of our pain, look what happened in Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemak sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment when he took all of the wrath of the Father upon himself, when all of our sins were laid upon himself, the Father turned his back on his son. They were not in relationship with one another. And Jesus felt extreme loneliness. So if you feel lonely, know that Jesus has felt that too. He felt forsaken, alone on the cross. But then, of course, he was raised from the dead, proving that God has accepted our offer of our sins through Jesus to him, forgiven, forgotten, by grace, through faith, not of works. And now we have a personal living relationship with the God of this universe, not through rules and regulations, but by grace. And in that relationship, we abide in him, and he abides in us. That's the New Testament perspective of how to overcome loneliness. Now, before I go further into that New Testament perspective, let me give you the Old Testament perspective, which is alike that New Testament perspective, but has a major difference. God would be present with his saints, with his people, but if they sinned, he could withdraw his presence from them. King David, for example, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, as he cries out to God for forgiveness, he cries out, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, if people sinned, God could withdraw his presence. But he was also with the great saints of the ages, too, when they needed him. We see it, first of all, in the life of Moses. At Sinai, when God commanded Moses to take the children of Israel into the promised land, Moses responds this way in Exodus thirty-three fifteen, And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, I'm willing to take your children to the promised land, but go with me. Be present. Because if you're not present with me to lead these people, I'm not going. So God made his promise to be with Moses. With Joshua, who was Moses' mentee, Moses handed the mantle of leadership to Joshua to actually plant the children of Israel in the promised land. Here's the promise that God gave to Joshua in Joshua 1.5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be, what folks? With you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God's promise. Then David, the great king, the great man after God's own heart, in the beloved Psalm, Psalm 23, 4, says this. 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The biblical antidote to the fear of death. To those of you who are afraid of going into a nursing home and having no one care for you is the presence of God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, the two weapons of the shepherd, will be there to comfort me and help me. The biblical antidote not only to the fear of death is the presence of God, the biblical antidote to fear in general is the presence of God. Isaiah 41.10 reads, fear not. Did you know there are 365 times the Bible says fear not? I think it's for every day of the year. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Don't fear. My presence is the antidote to your fear. In other words, there's nothing you nor I can face when we know the God of the universe is facing it with us. And then Isaiah 43, 2 through 5, these are some powerful verses. They begin with, when you pass through the waters. Now, let me take a quick parenthesis. For those of you who listen to preachers or other teachers through the week who suggest to you that if you just come to faith in Jesus, you'll never have any problems, may I say to you, they are lying to you. It's not biblical. It's not truthful. Jesus said, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He said in John 16, to his followers, in this world, you will have tribulations. Just don't forget the second part where he said, but rejoice, I've overcome the world. So if he lives in us, we can overcome our problems with him. But the problems still come to us all. When you pass through the waters, not if you pass through the waters, but when you pass through them. And my guess is if you're breathing, every single person in this room has had times when life's problems feel like a flood and your mouth is just above the water trying to keep from drowning. But God says to the Israelites, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. They might be at your mouth, but they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, notice when you walk through the fire, not if you walk through the fire. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Many of you today feel like your souls have been scorched. Your hearts have been singed by life's difficulties. It's something that happens to us all. Myself, Marilyn, and my family included. But when they happen, God makes the promise that he'll be with us and we shall not be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That means he saves us from not only our sins, but our situations. Now, the Israelites had committed heinous sins against God, and he was getting ready to send them into a 70-year captivity in Babylon. He was displeased with their behavior. But notice his promises as their Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are, what folks, precious in my eyes. Have you ever thought about this? That God looks at you, and he thinks you're beautiful. He thinks you're gorgeous. You're precious in his eyes, and you're honored. What does it mean to be honored? It means to be lifted up in the sight of God. You are in his hall of fame if you believe in him. And I love you. 
I was meeting this week with Tony Marciano, the head of the Charlotte Rescue Mission, and he deals daily with alcoholic addicts and uh, those who are caught in the quagmire of difficult drug problems. And Tony said to me, someone asked him one time, aren't you fearful that you'll start behaving like those you're serving? He said, absolutely not. And the person asked, well, why? And he said, because I know I am wildly loved by my daddy in heaven. That's my identity, not in drugs, alcohol, or anything else. My identity is in the fact I'm wildly loved by my daddy in heaven. That's what God's saying here. I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and the west. I will gather you. What's that promise? God says you're going to spend 70 years in the Babylonian captivity, but one day. One day I'm going to exchange your lives for all these other nations and I'm going to bring your children back to this land and I'm going to plant them back into this land and I'm going to redeem them, I'm going to rebuild them, and I'm going to restore them. So here's what I believe, folks. If you trust this God who's present with us in our lives, as he promised the Israelites, not only will he take your lives that are broken and repair them, he will take your lives and redeem them and restore them two times in blessing what you previously had. That's what I believe. That's my God. That's my daddy. That's the God of the Bible who promised to bring the people of Israel back to the land and replant them in his land. So that's the Old Testament perspective. God promises to be with his people. He doesn't promise to stay with them permanently because of their sin, but he promises to be with them. Then comes the New Testament. And through Jesus, God comes to us again. And he dies on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And here's the promise. Jesus says, I'm going to live within you, and you're going to live in me forever. The closest physical relationship we have on earth, folks, is supposed to be with our spouses. This whole understanding of abiding in Christ. That when Marilyn and I committed our lives to one another and are enjoined together, that we have a permanent oneness. The two become one, as the Bible said. Similarly, when you give your life to Jesus Christ... What happens is your life is now totally enmeshed in his, and his life is totally enmeshed in yours. You are interconnected in the deepest, most personal way. And here's the promise of the New Testament. This Holy Spirit who lives within you will never be taken from you. Never. Ever. Now, here's the problem, though. If you do sin with the Holy Spirit living within you, you grieve the Holy Spirit. He'll never depart, but you grieve him. I don't know if any of you know this experience, but when I have sinned against the Lord, what I literally feel like is the weeping Jesus inside my heart. I literally experience the Holy Spirit crying, grieved because I invited something unholy into his presence. Now, here's the good news, though. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and forgives us of all unrighteousness. All you have to do is confess that sin to the Lord, and it's wiped clean. And some of you say to me sometimes, that's too easy. It's too easy for us. It costs God his own life to make it that easy for us. Now, his presence lives within us forever. Look at 1 John 4, 13. Read this with me. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We abide in him, he abides in us. That word abide means rests, remains. Then look at John 14, 18, a promise from Jesus. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. 
through the Holy Spirit. He, he said it would even be better for him to leave them in their locale and ascend to heaven because at that moment he's not limited to one situation and a few people, but when he ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit can be poured out onto all people in all times everywhere. His abiding presence. He'll come to us. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Hebrews 13, 5, read this one with me. Keep your life free from the love of money. There it is again. Materialism will strangle the presence of God like nothing else. And be content with what you have, for he has said, what folks? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never, never, never. Permanent. And then Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven. You know, when I visited my dad right when he was dying, my last conversation with him is indelibly etched into my mind because those were his last words to his son. Jesus' last words should be indelibly etched in our minds before he ascended into heaven, and here's what he said. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you. How often? Always. How often? To the end of the age. Always until this world lives its last second. So the first step in overcoming loneliness, folks, is to abide in Christ, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've not done that, you need to. And that will permanently place the very presence of God within you. But there's some other steps you can take. Here they are. Have a continual conversation with God throughout your day. Continually practice the presence of Christ. The Bible says Jesus is my friend, my closest friend. So here's what I do throughout the day. I imagine I'm on a park bench and Jesus is sitting real close to me. And he turns to me and says, well, how are things going? I go, having a tough time, Lord. Well, tell me about it. You really want me to? Of course I want you to. I'm your closest friend. I'm your lifelong, eternal companion. What's going on? Well, Lord, I'm really having a hard time with these issues over here, and I just don't know what to do with them. And we'll just talk all day long. And what's so interesting, I can be in a meeting with the 15 spiritual leaders of this church, and I'm in constant conversation with God. As issues are raised, I'm in constant conversation with God. We talk all day long next to each other, engaging one another, encouraging one another, my closest friend. And then also, throughout the day, the Holy Spirit will prompt my heart to pray for certain things. Marilyn does something wonderful. At 12 o'clock noon, she sets on her phone to beep, pray for Pastor Saeed. The Iranian Christian who's been thrown in jail because he loves Jesus. Been there now two and a half years. Do you think he has to practice the presence of Christ? Do you think he lives in continual conversation with the God of this universe? Of course he does. And that beep on Marilyn's phone reminds her to pray. To pray for Saeed. To pray for his release. Soon, O oh Lord. And if you are connected to Christ, he will prompt your heart to pray for different things throughout the day. Look for prayer triggers. Something in the world that will remind you to pray for somebody else. Marilyn does this for me with geese. And some of you are thinking, why geese? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Did you know that geese fly 74% farther in the V formation than they do alone? 
That's because they play off the updraft of the goose in front of them. And therefore, they don't have to flap as furiously. If one of the geese gets shot or tired and goes to the ground, two others will fall to the ground with that goose until that goose is healed and able to fly again or dies. That's because they know they need three to fly in the V formation. When those geese fly over you and start honking, do you know why? It's because the head goose faces the most furious part of the headwind. And the head goose can't turn around to see if the geese are behind him. If he does, his neck will be snapped. So the geese are flying behind, playing off each other's updraft, and honking to tell the head goose they're still there. They're encouraging the head goose. So Marilyn knows that I am the consummate cheerleader in the church. You've already heard. I believe all things are possible with Christ. I believe that nothing is impossible with Jesus. I believe that he is the rebuilder, redeemer, and restorer of our lives. I believe all things work together for good. And I encourage you over and over again with those realities. That's a part of how I'm wired. So she has made the connection with me and geese. As they honk and encourage one another, that's me. So every time she sees a goose or she hears the honking going on, it's a prayer trigger for her to pray for me. And I'm so appreciative. My guess is you've got people in your lives that something will remind you of them. Whatever it is, it will remind you of them. And when you see that through the day, you'll engage in continual conversation in prayer with the Father about that person. Also, I think you can talk to the angels. Did you know there are millions upon millions of angel armies ready to come to your aid? Hebrews, the first chapter, says they are ministering spirits ready to help God's chosen. I think they're the most underutilized, powerful spiritual force in the universe. And yet we hardly ever refer to them. We hardly ever call upon their aid. And I think, and I may be entering into some biblical dangerous territory here, not sure, but I think we can ask the angels to pray for us. I really do. I mean, they are eternally perfect creatures. And they do whatever God tells them to do. And and one part of the Bible says they look at you and me and the mess we've made of things in this world and our personal lives, and they are absolutely amazed that God loves us. They stand in awe that the Lord God of this universe would send his son to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins when we're such a mess. But the Father did. And if the angels are at the Father's beck and command to help us anytime we cry out for their need, does it not make sense that they would be an intercessory prayer for us? So during that continual conversation with God, we should ask the angels to come help us. We should ask the angels to pray for us. Also in that continual conversation, I think we should ask the saints who've gone ahead before us to pray for us. The Bible says the prayers of the saints ascend to the Lord regularly. Is that just the saints here on this side of eternity? Why doesn't it include the saints who've gone on to heaven? I think it does. So that means 
if Hebrews 12 is correct, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that those witnesses might include the saints who've gone before us and they're cheering us on to finish this race of faith faithfully. That means my mom and my dad and other loved ones are cheering me and my family, my kids, their grandkids, on to victory in Christ. So if that's the case, why can't I regularly ask mom and dad to pray for their grandkids? To pray for me. I think I can and I do. In fact, last week, Marilyn and I were in Valparaiso, Indiana. Our son plays for the Valparaiso University Crusaders basketball team. And they're playing for the conference tournament championship. The winner of that game goes to the NCAA Big Dance Tourney that's going to be announced tonight at 6 o'clock. And during the last couple of minutes of that game, when it was nip and tuck, and we didn't know who was going to win, I got to be honest, I cried out, Hey, Dad! Mom! If you've got any influence with the Lord, would you ask that possibly Valparaiso could win this game? (laughs) True confession's good for the soul. We won. We won. So tonight at 6 o'clock, as you're looking at bracketology, root for the Valparaiso Crusaders, and they'll play this week in the big dance. Marilyn and I are just praying it won't be in Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, Washington. Anyway, that's one of the things I believe, folks. Why not? If the prayers of the saints ascend to the Lord and are used by him, why can't we ask the saints to pray for us in that continual conversation with the Lord? Now, folks, either that's true or that's the worst lie that's ever been perpetrated on the face of this earth. So let's move on then. Well, how then do we live out not only our relationship with the Lord, but our relationship with one another. Many of you have heard the old story of the little girl who was scared during the lightning and thunderstorms, and her mama kept coming in over and over again, and she would say to her, Honey, honey, just don't fear. Jesus is with you. And the little daughter finally said, Yeah, mama, I believe that, but I want Jesus with some skin on. How do you get Jesus with some skin on? Let me give you a few ideas. First of all, in life groups. Forest Hills Ministry of Jesus with skin on is in groups of 8 to 12 to 15 where you're in community with one another, looking at each other's eyes, touching each other as you pray, seeing the body language as you're living out biblical community with one another. Then you move from acquaintances to close friends. Next, reach out to others. Go serve somebody else. I hope every life group in here serves together. You're supposed to. And when you find life groups that are serving together, your relationships will grow deeper. There are also some prayer groups that meet weekly here that you could come join in community and build friendships. Go on a missions trip. There's nothing that builds closer relationships than being with other people for two weeks on a missions trip. In fact, you singles, I say to you all the time, you really want to meet somebody and get married? Go serve the poor with people. You'll already have the foundation that's necessary for a strong relationship as you serve together. Nick Dusenberry, who's the chief financial officer of Forest Hills Church, he, he was in his late 30s, just waited faithfully for the Lord. He met his wife on a missions trip to Senegal, West Africa, and we just learned they're expecting their first child. On a missions trip, serving, giving their lives away, volunteer here in the church, in the different things we've got going on. You'll soon build friendships and be a team with other people. Send a card to somebody, an email, an Instagram. Just write H-O-N-K, exclamation mark, okay? 
Give them encouragement. Call them on the phone. Go visit them. Be Jesus with skin on to other people. And I am convinced if you'll go serve somebody who's worse off than you are, your own depression will lift, your own loneliness will lift, and the Lord will start working in powerful ways. Go read in the public schools with these kids who don't have a mom or a dad to read to them. Go serve at a food kitchen, giving hungry to those who don't have food. Above all, folks, just don't bowl alone. And if your loneliness is leading you to destructive behavior, more specifically, if your loneliness is causing you to medicate with drugs or alcohol or porno, I mean, what kind of an intimate relationship do you have with a celluloid model, really? If that's moving you in those directions, please come to our care and counseling department and let us sit down and find out what's going on in your heart and move you toward health and wholeness and a clean heart. And finally, look forward to eternal community. Look forward to eternal community. There's no loneliness in heaven. None. And as you're fearful maybe of death and moving into eternity, think of it this way. Think of yourself as a baby in your mother's womb. And you're fearful. What's on the other side of this womb? What's this world I'm entering into? But how the fear would evaporate if you knew you had several hands excitedly awaiting your entrance into this world. If you knew you'd be hugged and loved and cared for for all your life. Similarly, as you're in the womb of death, in the darkness of your soul, facing the next life, Imagine it as a new birth. And as you move into this new world, there are all those whom you've loved. My mom, my dad, aunts, uncles, family, friends, whose hands are outstretched, ready to receive me into eternity. Doesn't that cure loneliness? Because there's no loneliness in heaven. To God be the glory.